In the aftermath of the 1999 Major League Baseball season, Steve Cannell and I were called into the office of Bill Coulson, our boss and Sports Illustrated's managing editor. The magazine's higher-ups decided they wanted to end the century with a bang, and that meant a final episode of the year that would chronicle the century's 50 greatest athletes from every state, with 50 different covers. Though Steve and I had just wrapped another long, off-brutalizing season writing SI's weekly Inside Baseball column, Colson charged us with the task of 50 athletes, 50 states. For two guys in their 20s, it was an honor. It was a challenge. It was pure, exhausting, soul-breaking hell. And that is the primary subject of this week's episode, Sports Illustrated's 1999 year-end issue chronicling the 50 greatest athletes from every state and the nightmare that it was to put together. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Steve Canella, Sports Illustrated's co-editor-in-chief, my long-ago partner on the baseball beat, and a man with whom I, 22 years ago, teamed up to compile SI's bold, ambitious, hellish, 50 greatest athletes of the century from all 50 states project that nearly killed us. This is episode number 240. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Mel, this, is a, this has been an episode I've wanted to do for a long time. First of all, you and I have a definitely have a shared history. You and I did were the co-writers of the Inside Baseball column. Yep. For, I don't know how long. A couple of years, right? A couple, uh, couple seasons. It was good having someone to sort of complain to and vent to and go through the motions with. And, you know, we did a lot of games together. It'd be me, you, Big Gap, Verducci. Uh, then we would, we would meet at the, we would complain on the phone to each other all season. And then we would meet in an auxiliary press box in October somewhere and uh, do it in person. It was great. And then basically run to get notes for Verducci at games, which was actually an honor. I mean, the guy is great. And um, you'd be lucky. Maybe you'd get like, all right, we want, how about a 400 word sidebar on Alfonso Soriano? It was, I mean, it's hard to believe how different things were back then, not just for our careers, but all we really had to worry about in 1999, let's take the world series in 1999 was putting something together for a weekly magazine. And the idea that basically our job at the world series could be exactly that. You might end up writing a 400-word thing on for Alfonso Soriano. That's crazy. Can you imagine? There's nowhere in media does that happen today. It's crazy. You're at the top of the masthead at Sports Illustrated. Does that make you nostalgic for those days? Like, do you do you long for the days where it's just a magazine and that's all you're worrying about, or is it what it is and you sort of adjust? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, in a weird way, was not just being at Sports Illustrated was was being in media easier back then. Yeah, probably. I mean, digital was in its infancy. There was no social media, like all the things that make particularly a baseball beat writer's job really, really hard right now, which is, you know, the idea that there's no deadlines anymore because every single minute is your deadline and you need to be on social media. You need to be breaking things digitally on video. Like it makes you a little nostalgic just for, I guess, the way you would for a simpler time. Um, On the other hand, I think if you and I were coming up in this environment or in this era, um, we would have gotten a lot more, probably more opportunities sooner than we did. We wouldn't have been fighting each other for a 400 word sidebar once a week. <laughs> like, it, you know, there's never, in some ways there's never been a better time to be a young, young aspiring 
writer than right now because there's no shortage of appetite for uh, for content. And, you know, not just not just based, not just covering the World Series. I mean, I think we probably talked about this, but even to get in the magazine back then in the late '90s when we were reporters, or you were a writer reporter, probably a little ahead of me, like fighting over catching up with <laughs> and and front of the tiny little front of the book items, like um, so. Uh, yeah, it's sure. It was a simpler time when you're an old man. It's easy to be nostalgic, but uh, I don't know if things were necessarily better or worse back then. 1999, baseball season has ended. The Yankees have beaten the Braves in the World Series. And you and I, you know, doing the inside baseball column back then was a lot of work. It was great, but you'd be on the road every week and they'd be like, all right, Canelli, you go to San Diego and and write 500 words on Ken Caminetti and then go to Chicago and talk to blank and all right. And yeah, you go do um, go to Kansas city, do, you know, 700 words on Mark Quinn and then (laughs) blank. Right. And that was it every week, week after week after week. And it was, it was exhausting. It was great, but it was exhausting and hard. So that ends. And usually when that ended back then, you would get this little break. We'd get a break where you wouldn't have to write for a while and you could relax and hang out at home with your girlfriend or whatever. (laughs) I don't know. Do we get called into the office? Do you remember how I think it was the day after? The, I think it was like the day after the World Series. I want to say the World Series ended. I can't remember. It probably ended like Friday or maybe on a Saturday. And I feel like like the following Monday, whatever, you know, we were called in to uh, get debriefed on this project. So that would have been what last week of October. And looking at the date, it probably closed mid-December. So we basically had five weeks to get all this done. It was, quote unquote, a very ambitious project. I remember they were like, it's going to be very ambitious. It's the 50 greatest athletes from every state, because it was 1999, it was the last episode of 99, last issue of 1999, 50 mm-hmm. greatest athletes, every state for the century. You and I were charged with compiling this list for every state. And I think they brought in Mark Bechtel briefly after and gave him like four or five states. So basically it was the three of us who did this thing. I remember it as a nightmare. You think it was that fun? That much fun? Uh, <laughs> um, it was. I remember, actually, I remember hearing the idea, and I still think it's a great idea. So I remember hearing about it that first day. And I want to say, I'm not, I can't, I might be wrong about this, but I want to say the two of us were sitting in Bill Colson's office, who was the managing editor at the time. Like, I feel like it was like it was, we got called in to talk to the big boss at that point. And he talked, he took us through it. And I remember thinking, oh, that's, that's a cool idea. Um, but yeah, it turned the difficulty was not just having to do the research and just how much the sheer amount of work it was. It was, I don't think we ever figured at the beginning of the process just how like just how difficult the decisions were gonna be. And I'll be honest, like um I'm looking, you know, as I flip through the list now, for the most part, the list looked pretty good, but we we're full disclosure, we were probably making decisions we weren't weren't fully informed enough to make <laughs> in a lot of cases. And I will say we that's not entirely true because I do think before we got involved, some research had begun and folks had written, you know, like as I had reached out to like every state's Hall of Fame, like the Arkansas Hall of Fame, the California Hall of Fame. So and I know there were some starter lists, but as I'm sure we're going to get into, like, you know, once you get down to the 45 through 55 on the list, there were some ridiculous decisions that had to be made. I want to say a few things. Number one, um, I'm looking at North Dakota. So I, I believe how it worked was you definitely had A through whatever. And then yeah. I had lower. And I got Delaware because I went to University of Delaware. <laughs> got some other. And a couple I love from my personal experience, I still remember, 
I remember in North Dakota, I had 40, I had 49, but I couldn't find a 50th. And the thing was like due the next day. And I went <laughs> to Sports Illustrated Library. And the library used to have huge media guides, you know, huge collection of media guides. And I've been going through old media guides, looking for anyone from North Dakota. Somehow, Randy Hedberg, a quarterback from no State, had played a handful of games with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And if you go to North Dakota, he's like 33rd in North Dakota. Wait, who's the name? What's the name? Randy Hedberg. Yep, there he is. It's, uh, yeah, that's uh, North Dakota gets tough once you get down to the, the, uh, the, the bottom of that list. And my favorite, I did Delaware. When I was at Delaware, the star center was a guy named Spencer Dunkley. I was just like, I'm getting Spencer Dunkley on this list. Even though he grew up in Wolverhampton, England. I was like, he's getting on <laughs> because he went to high school for one year in Newark, Delaware. So if you go to 50th in Delaware, there's Spencer Dunkley. I, feel I remember you, I think you had a great line. It might've made it into, remember you said it and I might've put it in. I, I like ghost wrote the ad letter for that magazine that when it ran under Colson's name. <laughs> I remember you said he wasn't even the best. He wasn't the best player on that team, but he was the best one from Delaware. But the, but that he's a great example. We that was that was one of the hard decisions, not just who to cut off the list at, but the hardest thing was figuring out where people are actually from. Like if we didn't have, it wasn't where they went to college. You couldn't say, "All right, we're going to put you where you went to college," because since we were drawing from so many different sports, that didn't always apply. We couldn't say it was where you became a pro because. How you fit an Olympian into that category. We couldn't say it was where you went to high school because a lot of people moved. I think uh, Pete Maravich is a good example. Like a lot of people moved around and went to like three different high schools. Like, so I think we sort of arrived at this sort of mushy internal definition of it's where you, kind of where you made your name as a sports star. <laughs> but yeah, Dunkley probably could have gone on the England list or the Delaware list, right? Uh, he could have gone on, uh, where did you say he was born? Wolverhampton? Wolverhampton, England. Yeah, do you have one you remember? Do you have any that you uh, stand out in your head? I mean, some of the people, California is a ridiculous list, but I think we left off Robin Yount and George Brett because, like, California was so st- <laughs> like that seems that's, that seemed actually. Hold on, let me look at California's list right now and see who we put on there. Matt Biondi, forty nine. Ricky Henderson, forty eight. That's a tough. That's a tough club to crack right there. The California one. But like George Brett and Robin Yount did not make California, but Matt Biondi did. See, that's a weird one. I think we were looking for diversity and all the meanings of that word. Like we wanted to have a lot of different sports represented. And that's the other kind of thing that made this makes this both a great idea, but also a little bit absurd is like, how do you compare George Brett's accomplishments to Matt Bondi, Biondi's accomplishments? Like is hitting 390 in 1980, is that better or worse than 11 Olympic medals? <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of what sports is, right? Like that's why we, it's yeah, you watch for the fun of watching the game, but half the time you're watching just to have something to argue about with your friends later. <laughs> That's kind of what it made. I, I still think kind of what made this is a cool idea. 20 years later, I'm tempted to uh, kind of revisit it, actually. My greatest moment maybe in magazine history was um, this is the best thing ever. I had North Carolina. You know, we were digging through old articles and digging through old articles to find people. And I read an article about high school shortstop from North Carolina named Walter Teapot Fry. And... <laughs> I read this article and it was, there was a push to get him in the state hall of fame, the North Carolina state sports hall of fame. And I just thought, wouldn't it be funny if I put him on the list and then they use that. And get him in the hall of fame? So the article, the, the thing runs and there was an article in the Greensboro news and record. This is ran in January, 2000. If North Carolina baseball legend, Walter Teapot Fry were alive, he'd probably be grinning. 
The late Fry, who once dazzled minor league crowds nationwide with his crafty plays at shortstop, has earned recognition that places him among the greatest Tar Heel athletes in the September issue, blah, blah, blah. He'd probably be grinning that lopsided grin, said his wife, Doris. He would say all that publicity in 50 cents would buy me a cup of coffee. It goes on to say how the Sports Hall of Fame is now going to reconsider his candidacy. <laughs> Look at you. Changing changing history with, uh, with your choices in our list. <laughs> he wound up not getting in. One other that sticks out to me, and in retrospect, it was probably messed it. We probably messed it up. Like, you know, there were a few cases where we, there was George Brad and Robin down, people like that, who we knew we were leaving off because it was just a really hard decision. And then by virtue of, you know, the way we had to do this research, some people just slipped through the cracks on us probably. So one was, you know, in Maine, which was actually a good list at the top. I think it was Joan, ben- Joan Benoit was uh, number one in Maine. Um we, we got a lot of angry letters because we, I left out uh, Louis Sokolexis, who was a major leaguer from Maine, one of the first Native American players to uh, to play in the major leagues. And it was, yeah, it was it was a definite oversight, especially considering I think we all, <laughs> I think we had L.L. Bean on the main list. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's, that's the one thing where I felt bad after the fact was when, and we got a lot of letters, like I, I remember, not just letter back then we actually got paper letters from readers. And um, I think you and I both did uh, a lot of like talk radio appearances and things like that. And we got, you know, got grilled in different States, about how'd you forget this guy? How'd you forget this guy? And when we could at least talk about, we knew of that person and we left them off for a reason. It was like a real good debate to have, but I did feel bad every once in a while when we would come across someone that we just totally whiffed on that we probably should have had. First of all, the main list is ridiculous because it's Joe, all right, Joan Benoit Samuelson, Olympic marathoner, huge, Number one. Number two, Cindy Blodgett. <laughs> I don't know, but that was, uh, she's way up on the uh, all-time scoring list, at NCAA scoring list, right, for women's basketball. So that's, uh, that would be the other interesting thing to do now is not just redo the list to see who we forgot. But I think the way it says something about the sports landscape in general and the way certain accomplishments were valued versus how they might be today, probably. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, yeah. We might have gone a little heavier on some Olympian folks, like, you know, Bruce Jenner is in Connecticut, Bruce back then. Um, uh, Beyond, you know, making California, that, that that makes a lot of sense. I think scattered through here, there are some other relatively minor Olympians, and some of that probably reflects um, the place, not that, not that anyone's diminishing the Olympics now, but I think 21 years ago, the Olympics probably held a little bit of a greater... Uh, place in the public imagination than, than, than maybe they do now, especially some of the minor sports. Um, does that make sense? Like, you know, I don't know that, you know, even in the way SI covered it, the Olympics are uh, not quite the audience driver that they, that they used to be probably. I feel like you're leaving off our biggest mistake and I'm happy to say you made it, which was we, le- we left off Evander Holyfield in Georgia. That's probably, that's probably why I didn't mention it. But. <laughs> Holyfield omitted from that's Georgia. <laughs> that was bad. That was bad. Let's see, 1999, he was only, uh, yeah, he was pretty deep into his career at that point, right? <laughs> Evander, I apologize. The other one I actually also remember is in Tennessee. I did Tennessee, and I covered high school wrestling when I was at Tennessee, and there was this great high school wrestler named Charles McTory who went on to a forgettable college career, and I had him one ahead of Philip Fulmer, the probably the most successful coach in the University of Tennessee football history. So there were some flaws there. I don't know if you remember this. So the, um, the issue was going to come out. And they put like a lot of stock in this project. And they were like, I remember, I forgot the, 
the publicist name, the SI publicist at the time, but he's like, mm -hmm. he goes, we never do this, but we're hiring an outside agency to help just with the 99 athletes. I mean, the 50 athletes from every state. And we expect you guys are going to have a lot of media to do and just be ready, just be ready. Cause there's going to be a lot of it. And I ended up doing, there's a different story in that issue. that sort of stole our thunder. <laughs> <laughs> so John Rocker comes out in the same issue and I got one, one interview request for the 50 greatest. I mean, we spent so much time in this stupid thing. I think I got one. I don't know if you even remember doing any interviews for it. I did one. Yeah, I remember doing a few. And then halfway through talking about whatever state we were talking about, they would want to pivot to a question about John Rocker probably, but, uh, <laughs> but that was a huge deal. So understandable how that, uh, how that sort of stole some of the spotlight from the, uh, from the state project. From your position now, do you look at this issue and think great idea, flawed idea, brilliantly executed, poorly executed, like looking back now from a different, from a managerial position, how do you do it? I'm, I'm actually really impressed by it. Um, sure. You look at it and, Look, it's 20, 21 years later, right? Um, actually, no, 22. 22. Yeah. Uh, and um, so, sure, some of it looks a little bit dated. and and But no, I think it's a great idea. And for a couple of reasons. One, especially when you're putting sort of knowing, knowing a lot more now or being much more cognizant now than I was then of how a magazine gets put together. And, you know, I, I kind of realized that just as important as whatever you're, the topic you're writing about or, the, or the, the way you tell a story is like the way it's it's kind of packaged. And like, and like magazine, that's a, that's a tentpole of sort of the entire magazine industry, whether it's, you know, 50 best places to live or, or, or you know, those kind of packaging ideas um, that people can sort of, you would hear that phrase and you instantly get it as you're a reader. And so you're like, I don't, you know, I can dive in and I know what they're trying to do and I know how they're trying to pique my interest. And the other reason it works really well is, there's literally something for everybody in this magazine. If you picked up this magazine, if you pick up a normal magazine, not just SI, you might be interested in the cover story. You might be interested in one of the features. Like this is one of the few issues of any magazine ever where it's impossible if you pick it up, not to flip to the state that you are from or the state that you live in and say, Hey, I wonder what they said here. And um, in that sense, it's a great idea <laughs> because that's what you want to do. You want to, you want to, I don't care if it's a magazine. I don't care if it's a, web column. I don't care if it's a TV show. You're, you want people to read it. You want people to buy in. And it is, you know, it also taps into something that in some ways it was, I don't want to say ahead of its time, but you know, this sort of presage, like local, local, local is, is, is the most important thing a lot of times in, in, in any sort of media coverage. Um, national stories are great, but people want to know how that affects, how those national stories affect them at the local level. And in that sense, I think it's a great idea and that, by definition, it's a it's a story or a package idea that has just extremely wide appeal, and um, they probably should have got some smarter people to put it together. But uh, no, I think <laughs> it was a great idea. I feel like I buried the lead on this. I will not name names, especially because I don't remember the name. Didn't someone call someone while working on this, reporting on this, and kind of tell them to fuck off or something and get fired? Yeah, yeah. I'll leave out the state and the name, but okay. someone who was helping us with some research, someone like relatively new to SI at the time, was making some phone calls and somehow, <laughs> somehow got, uh, somehow got routed in a, you know, in the, in the, in a Kafka-esque phone, you know, tree to the governor's office of a certain state. 
And when the person in the governor's office obviously couldn't help with, hey, who do you think should be 48th on the list of your greatest athletes? Uh, was a little snippy. And this person calling from SI um, thought the phone was hung up, but it wasn't. And uh, was basically heard telling the governor that they had to fuck off. So, uh, and unfortunately, person in the governor's office heard it. So we got a, we got a very quick phone call from that person. I, I amend my earlier statement. This idea and this package was well-received in 49 states. Maybe, <laughs> maybe not all 50. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's still home from college for winter break. So, Casey, I heard Taylor Swift redid all her albums. Uh-huh. You know who's awesome? That guy on TikTok. Uh-huh. I'm feeling hella dope. Let's get matching tats, kid. No. What the hell? You've been home for a while now, and I'm trying to connect with you, college kid, but nothing works. Just because I'm 18 doesn't mean I'm into trivial stuff. Talk to me about the goods. RoyalRetros.com throwback Doug Flutie jerseys, handcrafted and perfect for the late holiday gift. I hear Stranger Things is crazy. Dad, stop. Let me ask you a question. I still enjoy a magazine. I do. I still enjoy a magazine. I still. I know. I don't enjoy it as much as I used to because it does feel a little... I almost feel like I shouldn't be reading it. Like I look like grandpa reading a magazine. <laughs> There's almost something off-putting about that. Is the idea of a print magazine something that we're holding on to, but that doesn't really have legs anymore? Or is there any, is there any room left for the idea of receiving a print magazine in your mailbox? Uh, well, geez, I really hope the answer to that is yes. As, uh, <laughs> as, as someone who not only loves magazines, but spends, I spend it. Yeah. That's, that's one of my big focuses at SI, but no, I think I love it too. I don't think it's just, um, the grandpa in me that still loves it. I do think that's not just SI, it's all magazines. There's something different than that tangible reading experience that um, that matters for a couple of reasons. One, I don't care what anyone says. You could have the nicest iPad with the best resolution in the world. The, like, the reading experience is just better in a print product. Um, photos are better. And when you want to, whether it's SI, whether it's the New Yorker, whether it's any magazine, when I pick up a story, like if I'm if I'm going to sit down and go into like a deep dive kind of story on whatever the topic is, it's nice. Back in 1999, we didn't realize we were ever going to miss this. It's nice to be able to have that one thing to focus on. And if you're reading digitally, I don't care. You can just, you're always going to get interrupted. Like whether it's a text that comes in, whether it's a news alert, whether it's what I find is I'll be reading something online and you're like, oh, that's interesting. Let me Google that. And before you know it, you're 18 pages away from the actual story that you're like, I do think there's still something worthwhile in that sort of immersive experience. And even if it's only for 10 minutes, um, the ability to focus on what you're reading and sort of tune out the rest of the, the maelstrom for just a little bit. I think that's important. And I, I, I mean, even myself, my, my reading habits have changed. All of our reading habits have changed. And I'm not going to say it's for better or worse, but I can feel my attention span being flightier than it used to be. <laughs> and uh, whether it's a print magazine, whether it's a actual hard copy of a book, um, I still think there's something differentiating and, and really special about that experience. The other thing that's, I think, cool about the idea of a print magazine is, and this might even be more the case now than it was 20 years ago, is... Um, by something appearing in a magazine like that, you know it's been curated, archives. You know somebody made a decision to include this. It's something in this collection that has very limited real estate. 
Like the internet is endless. Anything can be published. And, you know, that sort of brings with it a sort of, I don't know, a stamp of approval or whatever you want to call it. Like this is worth your time <laughs> because someone made the decision to include it in this sort of packaging device where everything can be included. That carries some authenticity, some instant, some, some curation, some, some authority. I'm struggling for the right word, but I think that sends an implicit message to the reader that, Hey, this is important. This has value. This is worth your time. You're going, you're going, we think you're going to enjoy this as opposed to putting everything in the world up on the internet and hoping you stumble upon something that you like. That was really well said. Like I, um, mm -hmm. I was thinking about when I wrote my USFL book and I've said this to my wife before, nobody really gave a shit about the USFL and it wasn't like a highly coveted book, even though it sold well, you know, no one was like, Oh, you need to write a USFL book. I kept saying to my wife after it published, like it's the most satisfaction I've ever gotten writing a book because I felt like by putting it in a book, it almost like screams, look, I existed. I'm real. This matters. This isn't just some shit on the internet. Like this is actually a thing. It's tangible. Right. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's like an instant, um, it's almost like an instant time capsule in, in a way now. And yeah, in some ways it's the opposite of that because it's much, it will be much easier in 50 years to find something that's on the internet versus something that appeared only in a print magazine. But I mean, the other thing I, I enjoy I enjoy is oh, this is true at SI and this is true at most magazine outlets. You can read in both places. Like you can, a copy of Wired landed in my mailbox yesterday and I have an online subscription so I can read most of those stories online. And um, it's nice to have that flexibility. And it's, I, I feel like the reading experience is a little different. And what I'll often do is start a story online or on my phone or something like that. And if, and I don't realize, wow, I really like this a couple of paragraphs in, I'll put the phone down and I'll go look for the print magazine and finish it off there. It doesn't have to be an either or experience. It's kind of nice the way the two, uh, the two mediums media, what's that word, uh, can play off each other and makes for a better experience all the way around. So you and I came up in a very bustling sort of SI world where the office was the hub and we would spend a ton of time in the SI library. The SI library is my all time favorite place probably. You know, you would see people be like, hey, Canela and blah, blah, blah. And you'd go down to the cafeteria and, you know, whatever, office parties and going out and this real feel of camaraderie. And obviously you're the editor of a magazine in a very digital age. We're talking from your, I think it's your basement. Is anything lost in not having the camaraderie of office space and chatter by the coffee machine and shared meals? Does that matter? Uh, yeah, it definitely matters, which is not to say I'm, pining for the days of spending 55 hours in the office of her every, every week. But uh, yeah, I think, first of all, I'll say this, when we went, when SI and just like everyone else went fully remote in March of 2020, I was really, really worried because I thought there's no way we're going to be able to not just put on a magazine, but do everything that SI has to do um, without that sort of centralized office hub. I think as a credit to the staff is that we figured out, <laughs> we figured out how to do it and we figured out how to do it really well, I think. So I do think what we learned is there might've been some parts of that, what you're talking about, that, that office experience that, um, you know, overrated wasn't the right word, but we're, we didn't lose as much as we thought we were going to lose by not having those. On the other hand, I do think, if, especially if you're in any kind of a creative business, whether it's putting out a magazine or, sports website or writing scripts for a TV show or, you know, whatever. Those creative conversations are so much easier to have in person. And um, what's really difficult is to get a group of 20 to 30 people together on 
something like what we're talking doing now and look at 30 boxes on a screen and say, okay, everyone come up with a great idea. <laughs> like it's just the conversation is stilted. It's, it's, it's harder. It's just harder to function that way. And the other thing that you, I realized that I guess I sort of knew, but it really came home when we all went remote is how much of a creative business is impromptu. How many ideas just came out of not a set meeting where we said, okay, we're all going to get together at 1130 and we're going to come up with great ideas, but someone pops in your office and says, Hey, what about this? And then you start bullshitting. And before you know it, you've got a great idea. And I miss that, that, that has, that has been lost in the, in the, in the remote world. Um, there are ways to get it back. You know, we, even though we're fully remote at SI, we, we are going to make an effort, um, especially starting in January to, to try to get together on a more regular basis so we can at least recreate some of that. But uh, yeah, there, I think there are pluses and minuses to the change, but has something been lost from office culture or being all together? Uh, yeah, that's no question that some things that we need to do are, are a little more difficult than they used to be. But, but you, I mean, you tell me, you were, you were remote long before the rest of us as someone who shifted to the book writing world. And that was largely a solitary at home experience, right? Uh, that is true. My whole goal in life, though, is to avoid meetings. <laughs> a worthy goal. Yes. I remember I'll, 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 it was one of my favorite lines ever. I remember and this is a long time ago, like probably 15 years ago, Michael Farber, the great hockey writer at SI saying to me once bragging saying, Steve, the best thing about my career is I have never been to a meeting, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure he was exaggerating a little bit, but, uh, uh, but yeah, especially in the zoom world, I think we all know exactly what he meant. And I have a, I have a controversial take for you. I wonder how you feel about this. So when, when we were at SI together, the masthead was filled with these huge names, right? I mean, huge sports writing names and Russian and Riley and Gary Smith and Farber and Hoffer and on and on and on, just these big, big names. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was growing up, the masthead was filled with big names like Ron Fimride and uh, Jenkins and on and on and on. I think the writing is just as good now as it was when the names were neon and celebrated and you could kind of become a celebrity being an S like, I don't think the writing, I just don't, I think people are like, Oh, writing. It isn't like, give me the days of Dan Jenkins. I don't really see it. I think the writing is just freaking good now, but you see it all the time and you're editing a lot of it. I mean, am I, am I off on that? Is that a stupid take? No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I also think some of that is, you're always going to think that the generation just above you are the giants of whatever, you know, or, or just ahead of you, I should say. So yeah, when we were young and coming up and all those names that you just mentioned, we're dominating the, the, the table of contents. Um, that's who we wanted to be. So you sort of, I'm not taking anything away from them. They're all fantastic. But I guess when you're in any business or any industry for a long, long time, and then as you've watched other folks sort of your age or younger than you sort of develop and you, it's just harder to just have that sort of, wow, these people are giants attitude because it's not people you sort of grew up looking at from afar and saying, that's where I want to get. So that's a long way of saying, I absolutely think that at SI, I would put the talent we have up against the talent we've had at any time in our history. Do we have in sheer numbers? Do we have as many writers as we once did? No, we don't. The, the, the business has changed, but I'm going to struggle here not to name any particular names because I don't want to leave anyone out, but we've got, trust me, we have we have a lot of people on our masthead right now, both digital and print, who there's a whole generation of kids, 15 to 18 to 25, who are coming up in the business now. We're looking at them and saying, wow, that's who I want to be. And in and, and our minds, um, that group is, or in their minds, that group is what, I don't know, 
Dan Jenkins and Gary Smith were to, to you, to you and me when we were, when we were coming up. Our former colleague, Chris Stone, he used to, um, every now and then I'll talk to him and he'll say, this guy or this woman, they're a star. They're going to be a future star. And they're talking about writing. Are there still stars in the way, just as an example, Rick Riley was a star. Like he was a star, writing star. Is it still a star business in that sense of the word? Um, yeah, I think for sure. And in some ways, maybe even more so than it used to be. By that, I mean, that again, this is not just SI, this is not just sports. The media landscape in general is so much more crowded than it used to be that I think those star names, they pop. And and if you have to make some really hard decisions, there's too much, too much to read, too much to listen to, too much to watch, too much stuff. So how are people going to make decisions about how to sift through all that and then decide how to spend their valuable time? They're going to gravitate to the names that they like and the names that they recognize and the names that they, that they know are going to give them something unique and something different that they can't get anywhere else. So people will not listen to this podcast because they want to hear from me. They're going to listen to it because they follow Jeff Perlman and, and in their minds, they, they know that Jeff is going to have an interesting conversation with whoever he's talking to. And that's why they're tuning in. And that's true at any media outlet. You know, I'll just use an example, a non-sports example, you know, depending on your political outlook, you knew if Maggie Haberman wrote something between 2016 and 2020, that it was a must read either because you were going to love, you're going to love her reporting or you're going to hate her reporting. But she became a star because she differentiated herself in her in her coverage. Now, there are different ways of being a star. Once upon a time, you could be a star just by being a writer. That's harder now. Now you have to build that following in other ways, whether it's through TV, whether it's through social media, all those, all those kind of things. But yeah, I don't, I think the idea of the writer star or more, more accurately, the media star, that's more powerful than ever in, in a lot of ways. And it's just harder to get to that point because there's so much more competition than there, than there used to be. You, you disagree? I don't know. It could be just old man-itis where I, because uh, I, I just feel like, I think maybe like you said, it's a changing de- uh, definition. Like I knew Rick Riley as a writer, but he was a star writer and yeah. you had to read what Rick Riley wrote. It seems like now the stars are more purveyors of information. So um, Jeff Passan, you know, you follow Jeff Passan on Twitter because he'll be the first guy to tell you who the Padres signed. And I'm not sure there are as many people who are super famous just for being great, great writers. Yeah, no, you're probably, you're probably right. And I guess here's the question. Were those people a generation, two generations, three generations ago, were they stars because they were, writers necessarily or were they stars because they had really unique voices and people were really interested in what they had to say and how they said it and the only medium available to most of us until 10 years ago was to be a writer and those same folks who the same type of people who two generations ago would have been a must read in a weekly magazine column. I think it's the same type of skill set in general that is allowing those people to find big audiences and big followings in other ways, whether it's TV, whether it's social media. Um, is it a different skill set? Yes. Would those, would a lot of those people have figured out how to adapt their unique voices to the more limited media opportunities of 1980 or 1990? Um, Probably when you had to be a writer and you had to craft a really eloquent 800 word column, if you were Rick Riley to do the point after, or a really eloquent 4,000 word story, if you were, let's just say Bill Knack or something like that, you know, back in the SI days for feature writers, um, 
there's a higher bar for entry, but uh, my guess is those people would have, Bill Nack would have figured out a way to be heard even in this generation, um, even if the appetite for that kind of story wasn't uh, exactly what it used to be. Bill Nack on Twitter, hard to picture. In a weird way, I can sort of picture it though. Like he was, I don't know, it's all how people embrace different ways of doing things, but he would, you know, you know him and he was, Bill Nack was, yes, he wrote the most beautiful, well-crafted 5,000 word story. He slaved over those things. He blood, sweat and tears went into every one of those stories. But when you talk to him, he was also like an extremely quick, extremely witty guy. Like, you know, his mind could work in a lot of different ways, I think. And uh, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. Could uh, what, would, what would Bill Nack have done on Twitter? That would have been uh, that the better one. I had Gary Smith on this podcast about a year, maybe two years ago. And he um, number one, we spoke via his flip phone. And I was thinking if Gary Smith were on Twitter, it would be like a 20 tweet stream <laughs> thought <laughs> you get to the end of the first one it'd be one of 643 you get you would get the, on the on the thread let me ask you a last thing so i was um i was writing for a while for bleacher report for a while bleacher report started this thing called br mag of course they're doing like these deep deep dives and they were basically like i mean some of the stories i wrote for them were ten thousand words eight thousand words mm-hmm. they had a lot of really you know excellent lars anderson our former colleague was writing for yeah. they did some good stuff and when I was hired there, the guy literally said to me, we want to kill ESPN and SI. We want to do exactly what they're doing, but better. And I was actually like, I don't, I don't really want to kill anybody. I just want to write. And then I think at some point, I really do. They were just like, why are we spending money on this when we could put a video of a monkey fighting a hockey player on the ice and we'll get more views for that than we will for 10,000 words on some you know, former lineman. Is that sort of the battle you face or media faces these days is, is there still value in long pieces? Um, yeah, I think there is. And I think this is a trap a lot of people in our business fall into. And it's weird. I find this to be more the case with a lot of younger writers in the business than some of the more experienced. People equate length with quality. And length is not by definition the marker of quality. Just because you wrote 8,000 words on something doesn't inherently mean it means you put a lot of work into it and it means you want people to see it. I read a lot of 8,000 word stories that I feel like could just as easily be 2,500 words to be frank. (laughs) And uh, which is not to say that I don't love a great long form deep dive story. Um, So I think there's value in that kind of a story when it's done right. And when, when it's worth, when it's worth the reader's time and I'll be honest, what drives me a little bit crazy sometimes is you'll see a lot of on social media. Hey, I just dropped my, I spent eight months interviewing 40,000 people for this 8,000 word piece, but which, and again, I appreciate the effort and I admire the effort, but the payoff has got to be there. And that's true even more now than it used to be. Um, here, here's the other interesting thing about how you talk about how to become a star, you know, whether there can be writing stars and things like that, because there are so many choices now. And this is something that I've, I struggle with as I'm trying to do this more as an editor, but a lot of people in this industry don't do this. You have to think of your audience when you're doing anything, putting together a video, writing a story, anything. It has to be, hey, do people want to read this? Not, hey, do I find this interesting? And do I want to spend two months of my life working on this? You need a writer needs to find it interesting, but if you are going to ask the reader to make that kind of investment of time, um, you better be damn sure it's something that they, they're interested in too. <laughs> and one thing we don't have now that we used to have is the luxury of people saying, oh, that's in the SI magazine. That's the only thing I have to read this weekend. So I'll give this a try. So I'll give it 
three pages and there might still be seven to go, but you can sort of, that you might have been easier a generation to sort of draw people in, or it's harder now to hit that. Uh, you have, I guess what I'm trying to say is you have less time to hook the reader, basically. I'll, I'll go back to, we're almost back to uh, a lesson I learned in my sophomore high school English class. Um, teacher named Mr. Bartluski, who was uh, Paul Bartluski, who taught us Shakespeare. And it's always stuck in my head about how Shakespeare always started every play with, with uh, some kind of a fight, <laughs> like a battle, because he knew that was the only way to draw in the audience, not just the, not the, not the rich people sitting in the seats, but the, uh, the groundlings who were like the, the common people, the peasants who would sit like right in front of the stage. And if they didn't like what they saw within the first five minutes of the play, they would start heckling and throwing fruit and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I'm not saying that's not like me saying if it bleeds, it leads in every story. That's not what I mean, but you gotta, in this, in this media environment, you gotta have your audience has to be top of mind at all times and um, try to get that leeway to draw folks into a story than it used to be. Well, Steve, listen, I appreciate you doing this. You're, you're, uh, you're one of my favorite people in media, obviously. And, uh, a lot of respect and uh, oh, thanks right back at you. Absolutely. Uh, you've, uh, you've done a really admirable job. I know it's, you've been gone from SI a long, long time, but I love sort of the path you've built for yourself and the pod is great. The books have been great. And, um, yeah, let's hope, let's hope we're still in a position to have another one of these conversations in 20 years. I want to thank today's guest, Steve Canella for joining me on two riders singing Yang. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve underscore Canella and read his magazine, Sports Illustrated. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.